Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, August 23rd. We begin with a look at the rising cost of living in Canada. We hear details on a new survey from Finder.com that focuses on how we're managing the soaring costs, which for many includes taking on more personal debt to pay monthly household bills. Next, it's our weekly conversation with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Mercedes brings us details on this week's meeting between German Chancellor Olaf Scholz and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Podcasts are highly popular right now, but they can also be a major source of misinformation. We discuss how the online medium is regulated and what you can do to safeguard yourself from accidentally sharing false narratives. And finally, it's another edition of Tech Tuesday. And this time out, the gadget guy, Mike Yanni, brings us the latest and greatest tech to help students find success just ahead of the new school year. Personal finance comparison site Finder.com did a survey asking Canadians how they were adapting to inflation. Well, it showed nearly a quarter of Canadians are taking on more debt to cover their living expenses. Ramona King is a senior finance editor from Finder.com and joins us now to talk about the results of the survey and uh, perhaps how to avoid adding to your debt. Hi, Ramona. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. How are you? Can you break down the survey for us a little bit? How are Canadians managing inflation overall? I mean, it's tough. Prices are going up. They're going up much faster than wages. And so many of us are taking a look at our budgets and trying to figure out what to do. And as a result, you know, we, we know that one in four Canadians, almost 24, 25% of Canadians are actually taking out debt, usually short-term loans, in order to cover those essential costs. And when I say essential, I mean housing, food, gas. So it's, uh, that's a tough position to be in. Romana, let's break this down as far as... Is, is it one demographic in our nation impacted by inflation and debt, or is, is it different demos? It's different demos, but we are certainly seeing that there are, are specific demographics that are, are probably more impacted. We know that, um, you know, the percentages are small in terms of who's falling uh, behind on housing payments, but women are almost twice more likely to fall behind on housing, either rent or mortgage payments, than men. That's a tough situation to be in. It also probably um, lends the idea that that women are in a more precarious position when it comes to having to either take care of of loved ones or working jobs where they don't get sick leave. Um, We're looking also at at Gen X. So, you know, you think about the younger generations or maybe the older generations that might not have access, but to the best of income or the highest income, but it's not the case. Gen X is the bulk of middle-income people who are more at risk of falling behind on the rent or mortgage payments, um, with 7% already saying that they're already behind in 2022. Mm -hmm. And are you seeing people then actually borrow money to try and cover their regular expenses? Yes, Uh yes, we are seeing that, you know, the, the top three reasons for taking out a loan in 2022 uh, was... You know, 36% said it's to cover bills, such as rent, mortgage, food, transportation. 24% were to consolidate existing debt. Now, that might actually be a smart strategy. And 19% to say cover uh, bills and living expenses due to a job loss. So those are all really sort of um, big reasons as to why you would take out debt in order to cover living expenses, housing, and food. The taking out debt, you know, doing what you can to get those bills paid, Romana, is one thing. But within the Finder.com survey, uh, it's also broken down what people are spending less on, what they're taking a hit on as far as re- removing the funds, the additional income that they put toward things. Can you give us some of those stats? Yeah, I mean, we're looking at uh, many, many uh, Albertans uh, and, and Canadians across Canada 
They're, they're removing the things that are, you know, make life a little bit nicer. The little personal extras, clothing and restaurants, 65% cut back on that. And I believe, um, uh, you know, sorry, sorry. Uh, it, and then there was, you know, almost half cut back on travel or large ticket mm-hmm. items. Uh, because, you know, hey, if you don't have money to cover the bills, why are you going to travel anywhere? Uh, and then, you know, then then it was became the necessities, you know, one in 10 uh, said, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to start falling behind on my housing costs or food, food or transportation. This has just got to set off alarm bells all over the place for, you know, experts in, in the money business uh, to watch somebody who would purposefully take out a loan to try and cover just the basics of day to day that's that's a ter- terrible cycle to get into I, I mean I'm not judging because I think you know sometimes when you have to do what you have to do but boy that's got to be hard and it must be horrible for someone to have to feel like they're in that tough are there other ways maybe to do this instead of taking out a loan to cover there are. I mean, the, the obvious way is to, to sit down and make a budget and figure out what it is that I'm actually spending on and where can I cut those costs. And, and you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, what they call, you know, payment creeps or interest creeps or, or, you know, tip creeps or lots of ways that, you know, spending extra money creeps into our budget. So when you sit down, it's not a, not always an enjoyable task. When you sit down and you figure out what is it that I'm spending on, where can I cut that? And when you start cutting, you can, I mean... Studies have shown you just do that simple act of sitting down with a budget and figuring out what to not spend on anymore. You can all you can save about fifteen percent out of your expenses right just doing that. But I think there are also other smart strategies. I mean, there's always you know the, the impetus to hey save more, uh, invest, make your money work for you, reduce your expenses. But I think a really smart way of doing that is also to figure out you know where can I negotiate lower costs. Do I have a cell phone uh, bill that I have not gone back to my provider and, and look for better deals? Um, you know, do I need all these streaming services? And if I if I can find them all consolidated in one area, can I can I can I take those options? What about my life or my car insurance or any any bill that you have not gone back to the provider and said, hey, what's the best option? What's the best deal? Start to actively and, and aggressively negotiate lower costs. And I think one of the best strategies for people really particularly people looking on taking short-term debt. Usually this is a credit card debt, and we know that credit cards charge exorbitant interest rates, you know, anywhere from 20 to 30%. Um, start looking at how to consolidate that debt. How do you find cheaper debt so you're not taking on, on, on that very, very expensive debt, which really, really stings and really adds a lot to the cost of, of living expenses, but the cost of paying for those living expenses when you're using borrowed money. Romana, I'm looking at, you know, at your survey and what was uh, really a takeaway for me was the when it comes to the percentage of people who have taken on debt to cover living expenses, it, it's the middle income households that are most indebted. That's interesting to me. Uh, was that of interest to you, seeing that it wasn't the lower or the higher income that might be spending more? I mean, it was of interest, but it also, I mean, it, it rings true in that the middle income are usually the ones that are most pinched. They're the ones that are paying the daycare costs and the mortgage payment. They're the ones that have to use transportation to get to work. You know, they're the ones that, you know, have to negotiate, you know, the, the aging parents and the younger children. So they're, they're pinched all the time, and they're the ones that are really trying to balance that budget. And yet, you know, when we look at the last 30 years, we know that wages on average have only increased by 2.43% per year. So it doesn't totally surprise me that middle-income households, you know, are, are take out nearly three times as much debt. And, you know, you know, 30% of them in Canada are struggling to make, you know, everyday 
regular uh, living expenses uh, cover those living expenses. So, I mean, it's not surprising, but I think the 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 quantity of middle incomers, uh, middle income earners that are struggling is a bit surprising. Yeah. Wow, some shocking stats. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Sue. Thank you. Romana King is a senior finance editor at Finder.com. Justin Trudeau meeting with his German counterpart, Chancellor Olaf Scholz, to discuss investment and partnership opportunities for Canada and Germany. To break it all down for us, we're joined this morning by Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief, and she is on the ground in the midst of it all. Hi, Mercedes. How are you? Mercedes, kind of on a related note, um, there's been a lot of criticism of Justin Trudeau and, and Canada as a whole for sending that turbine um, back, the one that supplies natural gas to Germany. This is a, this really appeared to be a chance for Trudeau, uh, the Canadian government, 
to kind of um, make people understand why they did it and to show that, you know, Germany needed it to come back, et cetera. It really kind of became a, a reason for him to talk about it again, didn't it? Yeah, it's, it's a reason for him to talk about it again. It's, it's an opportunity to talk about Ukraine and the war in general, which we were seeing this morning. Uh, the Prime Minister is, is looking for ways to continue to signal that Canada supports Ukraine because we don't see the war at the top of the newscast every night anymore, but it's very much still going on still going on for Ukrainians uh, and a country that is fighting for its survival. So there's still lots of questions about what Canada and other countries can continue to do to support this. And some of my military sources have said they have some concerns. They think that the Canadian government is sometimes a little bit reluctant when it comes to some of the military support, despite the fact that we are training Ukrainian soldiers in the United Kingdom. Uh, We are also uh, helping to get equipment and weapons into the country, including the use of Canadian Special Operations Forces, to help with that. Um, and we are, of course, having sent and continuing to send ammunition for those M777 howitzer guns, which are being used on the front line as artillery. Uh, and, and those are very powerful weapons, but finding the actual shells that go in them has been difficult. So it's, it's part of sort of this ongoing discussion Canada is having about how to support Ukraine, and frankly... From the government's perspective, what they're willing to do politically and what they're not to support Ukraine. All right, uh, just uh, still uh, not exactly switching gears because I want to talk about uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And as we have, uh, you know, a look ahead to the UCP, uh, not the UCP, the PCP leadership race, uh, I want to talk about Michelle Rumpel-Garner, who penned an article last week. And this is something that, you know, surprised me, MP Michelle Rumpel-Garner, mentioning that Justin Trudeau, there's a possibility he could call an election this fall or he risks being a liberal leader. I'm not sure if you've had the opportunity to read it. I've never considered this. Do you think that this could be a possibility that we could be going to the polls in the next few months nationally? I would be extraordinarily surprised if we did so. Um, That's not to say it's not possible. We've certainly seen the liberals choose before um, to go to the polls when you have a new conservative leader who is unknown to Canadians. I don't think Pierre Polyev fits that mold. Um, I think that because of some of the things he's chosen to say and do, he has a prominence that Andrew Scheer or Aaron O'Toole did not have. People are aware of who Pierre Polyev is, including people outside of politics. And and that wasn't the case with some of the other new conservative leaders. Um, There's a thought that if he's going to defeat Polyev, he needs to go now. But we really don't know how Polyev is going to pull nationally. It's easy for conservatives to say he's, he's picking up a lot of numbers, he's got a big base. That may well be the case with the conservative party. It doesn't necessarily mean that he can win a general election. And I think that Justin Trudeau right now is trying to decide what his future is. Um, they, they know they're in power until at least several years from now because they're dealing with the NDP, which means there's no urgency for them to go to the poll unless they are absolutely sure they're going to get a huge majority. And they got a shock last time. Uh, the minority government that they got was not the minority government that they were expecting. So I think a little bit of this is uh, the Conservatives trying to stir the pot. Nothing is ever totally outside the realm of possibility in politics because things change in 24-hour news cycles extremely rapidly. But I don't see any of the signs that we have typically seen before past elections at this point. Mercedes, thank you so much for joining us. We'll let you go catch your flight. Thank you for taking the time while you're running through the airport.
Take care, guys. You too. Good luck. Uh, Mercedes Stevenson, Global News, Ottawa Bureau Chief, host of the West Block at the uh, she is at Pearson Airport in Toronto. I think she's she's traveling to cover the prime minister and his visit with the German chancellor. So she's uh, clearly running through the airport. It's like that ad. Who was it that was running through the airport, jumping over luggage? I, that's how I picture Mercedes Stevenson doing it today. She literally covers every corner of the country. Truly. Gets it done. Yeah. Podcasting is a simple and accessible way to share news and opinions with little to no moderation. Carmen Celestini is a postdoctoral fellow at Queen's University and joins us to talk about how podcasts have really become a platform for misinformation of late. Good morning to you, Carmen. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. So how are podcasters able to share misinformation without facing penalties? Is there no regulation at all for podcasting? There is some regulation, but it's low moderation. And so what we see is that some individuals may be deplatformed. So if we think about Alex Jones, he has been deplatformed from many of the services that provide podcasts. But his show, or he as an individual, may be deplatformed, but he still becomes a, a, an interviewed person on other people's podcasts, or their fans spread um podcasts that he's posted. So it's like a resharing of those podcasts. And so while the individual may be deplatformed, the message is still being shared. I guess we even have to, Carmen, look at the definition of misinformation in that if it's opinion-based, that's one thing. If you're taking it as that, but when we talk about, you know, science, for example, and facts, there is the issue. Is there kind of a gray area when it comes to the word misinformation and podcasts? Well, there can be a gray area in the fact that there are opinions. And so, you know, everyone's opinion is able to be shared. But when we take it as something with someone who has a very large platform, it can spread disinformation or even conspiracy theories, which can affect people's knowledge base. And people will share that information, which continues to spread it. So what we think that we need to do is actually pay attention to researching things before you share information or before you engage with it. There are notions of freedom of speech and free speech that definitely have to be taken into consideration, but we need to think about these topics before we share it with other people and perhaps look at moderation. Who actually does the deplatforming of someone who constantly shares misinformation and, and may be pulled from the podcasting world? It's up to the individual platforms okay. to do that, and it works within the laws from whatever country that platform is based in. Carmen, you know, what is it about podcasts from your research that makes them so popular? Why do people want to consume this content? Well, I mean, it is a way to share a, a worldview. So if you are not trusting, say, um, media, legacy media, it is a way to engage with the news from a different perspective. It's also entertainment. It, you know, there's many, many podcasts out there that are completely entertainment-based. But when it is your sole source of news and it's reflecting a worldview that is different than legacy media, at times that's where the difference can come in. And you get a cohesive message that sort of reinforces some of that misinformation that's coming from different podcasts that are linked together that promote each other, then you have that, you you know, all of your news that you're getting is coming from this one lens. I mean, we talk about this with social media as well, right? How do you regulate it appropriately? So is there a discussion about how to stop, slow down, you know, end the spread of misinformation on the podcasting platforms? 
I think that many governments are coming in with policies and looking at these ideas because of the harm that misinformation can have. But the thing is, is that it has to be a global response. If Canada, say, makes a policy about what is acceptable or not acceptable on air, if you simply change your VPN, you can listen to it. So it has to be a global response. All of these platforms like social media and podcasts, it's borderless. There isn't one country. It's, a, it's one globalized thing, and the response to it has to be globalized as well. With the response when you talk about globally and these policies and regulations, Carmen, I'm wondering how much should we be taking on ourselves as the consumer of these things to make these choices, to, to go through and find credible and do, do our own due diligence on what podcasts not only do we align with, but that are truthful? Should we not have some personal responsibility? Absolutely. I think no matter how we look at social media, whether it's memes, it's podcasts, or anything that we share, we have to look at who our truth sources are. So we create truth bubbles. So someone who follows you, perhaps, would think that you would do due diligence before you share something. And so they will spread that information without doing some research. So if you have trust in someone who is spreading this information, you will just share that information because you believe them as your truth bubble. It behooves us, and it is our responsibility to do research before we spread or before we share anything. We can't mindlessly do what we all do by being on our telephone and just mm. press share, share, share. It's up to us to actually make sure that other sources are confirming this and sources that are outside of our normal truth bubble. What are the other opinions? We need to engage with opinions that are outside of our own group and our own bubbles online. Yeah, that's asking a lot these days, isn't it? Because, boy, it's so easy just to hit share. Uh, Thank you so much. It's a fascinating conversation. Really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much. Thanks. Carmen Celestini is a postdoctoral fellow at Queen's University in the School of Religion talking about podcasting. Are you a big podcast listening guy? Bits and pieces. I don't have that, believe it or not, I don't have a lot of time. <laughs> um, same reason I don't you know, keep current with a lot of the TV shows. Mm-hmm. I'm f- familiar with which ones are at the top of the heap and are popular. I'm familiar with controversies surrounding them. I think that's the thing. Those but, are the ones we hear about, the yeah, controversial ones. I do Joe think, Rogan, though, for example. Oh, for, that's a great example. I do think that you have to... Just not reading just the headline, a headline, just not reading a snippet or even a short clip and sharing it. Where is this information coming from? Yeah. This is something that you and I've done for years, mm-hmm. working in the broadcast industry. Where is the source of this? And you have to what look outside your bubble, as yeah. Carmen said. The very good point, right? This is if this is all the places. These are the places you get your news sources from. You need to look elsewhere and see if there's any verification. Kind maybe of thing. Yeah, maybe expand that view. And mm. we have the option too with so much information out there in 2022 for so sure. So true. Kids are dreading it. Parents are looking forward to it. The first day of school is just around the corner. On the bright side, students can look forward to some fun back-to-school tech. And tech specialist Mike Yanni joins us this morning to talk about some of the hot tech trends in the classroom for this year. Hi, Mike. How are you? Good morning. The magic number is nine. Nine? Nine days until my kids are back in school. (sighs) Yeah, seven. Yep, me too. Yep. (laughs) Rejoice. Counting down. Okay, let's talk about laptops to begin with, because obviously this is the time, right? And, I, and it's probably the biggest item that we are buying for kids of all ages in school. And it's the biggest question I get every year, which is the best laptop to get. Uh, and, you know, some schools encourage you to get laptops for your kids. The so bottom line, don't get caught up in the tech specs. Don't get caught up in the tech spec wars. you got to ask yourself, 
what do your students need this for? So think about this. If your grade student is just going to be using it to surf the web and uh, do some, you know, writing some essays, you don't need a laptop with some really high-end tech specs. You can spend three, $400. That's going to get them by. But if your student is going into maybe some specialty classes, maybe they're going to need to vi- uh, edit some videos, or maybe they're in grade 12, they're going to be going into, you know, university or college next year. That's when you start thinking about, okay, maybe I need something a little bit beefier, a little bit more higher with the specs, and you spend a little bit more money because it's going to last a couple of years. Another thing to keep in mind, battery life. I think that's the number one thing when it comes to laptops, especially when the, your students are in school all day. You know, you need something that's going to last. Um, so, you know, a couple things. Uh, the LG Gram is a great one. It's light. Uh, it's pretty high powered, uh, and that's if you're a PC user, if you're a MacBook or an Apple user, the MacBook Air is probably the way to go. Uh, the latest M2 processor or the latest, the last year's model is actually great and it's significantly cheaper. Something I, uh, you've on the list here, Mike, that I'd never buy for myself is a portable charger. I know how to charge things. But, but how teens many? And, and teens and people in uh, their 20s, they don't remember to charge. Right? How many times have, you know... When, your your kids have gone over to a friend's house after school and they forgot to tell you and you can't get a mm-hmm. hold of them. My phone like, died. Well, exactly, my phone died. So this, buy them a portable battery charger or a portable charger. You'll never hear that excuse again. They're cheap. You know, you can get them for 30, 40 bucks on Amazon. You can get, you know, larger sized ones. So you can charge your phone three times over. Absolutely no excuse anymore. Anything we should watch for though when we're buying those? Because there are a million of them. You know what? I... I would say stay away from the really cheap ones that you see online. Okay. There's a reason why they're very cheap. Yeah, a lot yeah. of them are made overseas. And, you know, you hear stories all the time about devices catching on fire if you leave them overnight, you know, unattended. Stay away from the really cheap ones. Okay. This one I've not heard of. I don't know anything about it, so but I'm intrigued. Accessory organizers or tech kits. What's this? This is the new pencil case. We don't call them pencil cases anymore. <laughs> They're tech kits. And there's a reason for that. And actually, I really love this because now you open up the so-called pencil case and there's loops inside so you can keep your charge cables, you can keep your charge bricks, you can keep your AirPods and all your different tech accessories. Plus, you can keep your pencils inside. So it keeps them all nice and tidy in one, one little case. These things are really taking off this year. Cool. I'm almost in the market for a new uh, printer because I don't know how to use mine. Uh, so I might have to go with a, an Epson EcoTank printer. I know you're a big cheerleader for this. Uh, I am. I talk why. about this all the time. I talk to you guys about mm-hmm. this yeah. all the time. You know, when the kids are back in school, they're going to be printing off assignments, printing off photos. It uses a lot of ink. These don't use ink cartridges. They use basically it's their tanks, and you fill them up with bulk ink. You can buy, you know, a large black ink for $20, and it's going to last you over a year. I, I, you can save a ton of money. The one thing I will say about Epson EcoTank printers, though, are that you pay more upfront. You know, they start between three and four hundred dollars, but that ink, I'm telling you, my wife's a realtor. She prints a lot of stuff. We can go easily a year, a year and a half without refilling those tanks. And I'm talking about color and black and white. It's pretty impressive. Okay, so it pays off in the long run then. It does. Gotcha. Excellent. Great tech advice as we send those kids to school. Hallelujah. Nine sleeps away. (laughs) Thanks so much. Appreciate it, Mike. Thank you. Mike Yanni is the Gadget Guy, and you can find him online at Gadget underscore Guy. He's on Instagram at Gadget Guy Mike. You can also find his channel on YouTube by just simply searching Gadget Guy Mike Yanni.